pray. God, you are great and holy and awesome, and your word is holy. You've given it to us so that we would know who you are, who we are, how we can be reconciled to you because of who we are. And Lord, all the benefits and all the promises of being reconciled to you. Father, help us to listen closely. Father, I pray that you would please speak through me. May I be your servant and your mouthpiece. May I speak as one who understands your word is holy. May your people listen closely and attentively as those who know your word is holy. And Father, may we all live our lives differently because we understand who you are and who we are and what we must do in order to express how truly wonderful and truly thankful we are to you for being for us what we desperately needed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would we do without the big sins? The big sins. How would we feel about ourselves if it were not for career criminals, gangsters, adulterers, thieves, violent offenders, and murderers? What would we do without the big sins? Maybe you've stolen some things in your life. Maybe you steal time from your company where you work or you failed to report all your income on your taxes, but... There are those thieves, you remember, that make a living out of stealing. They commit the big sin. Or maybe you look at porn from time to time, or even women's clothing ads in the newspaper. Or if you're a woman, maybe you read Christian fiction novels, and the hero of that story is your ideal man. But you feel a lot better knowing you've never cheated on your spouse. And maybe you shout a few choice words at people in your car during traffic, or you fantasize about a certain person being made a fool of, but you've never physically hurt anyone, or better yet, you've never murdered anyone. You haven't committed the big sins. The big sins keep us complacent in our faith. They keep us at a place where we think that we're holier than we really are. It's, it's like, um, it's like Jesse. He's a tall guy in our, uh, our congregation. I'm a tall guy, maybe Ben Whiting. If one of us were to walk in to a basketball camp for first graders and look around and say to ourselves, I could dominate anybody in here. I could totally wipe the floor with anybody in this room. And they're all first graders. Or, and so in order to keep up this, uh, this feeling of skill, this illusion of skill, if you will, you go uh, make yourself a coach of a first grade basketball team. And you stop watching the NBA and you stop, stop watching uh, the playoffs in college basketball because then the illusion of skill has been destroyed. But you, st- you stay around these first graders this basketball camp, you coach these first graders and you, you feel like you are 
just it, it, like you are the MVP. It's kind of, that, that's kind of what we do when we compare ourselves to these big sinners, so-called. Thieves, adulterers, murderers, we keep the big sins close as a reminder of those people who are truly evil so that we don't feel too bad about the half-truths that we tell or uh, the bitterness in our hearts that's growing and festering. What then do we do with those people who are truly living holy lives? We we, we tend to keep the the big sins close so we feel better about ourselves, but what about the, the people that are truly living holy lives? We keep them at arm's length because we don't feel so good about ourselves when we're around them. We don't feel like uh, uh, we're as holy as we think we are whenever we're around the, uh, the, the people or we remember the people who commit the big sins. So people uh, that are truly living holy lives, let me tell you, like, like this uh, um, man, uh, this guy I knew in college, who was actually one of my mentors in college, very influential in my spiritual life. Um, when I was in college, was, he's still one of the holiest men I know. And um, he, he, he would just go out on a secular campus sharing the gospel with strangers, anybody who would listen to him. And uh, he's, he's going, um, he, he's taking the commandments of scripture seriously. He's pouring over the word. He's studying the word. He's, uh, he's uh, preaching uh, every Thursday night at the Baptist student ministry where we went. And he's preaching and challenging us. Don't make your life about entertainment. Don't make your life about just making A's. Don't make your life about, you know, you just your friends. Make your life about uh, radically selling out for the glory of God. And, and so not a lot of people got real close to Justin, my friend. Not a lot of people got very close to him. They, they, they would talk to him. They were cordial with him. There, there was that surface relationship. But a lot of people just kept him at arm's length because to be around a person like that is to feel like you're not as holy as you want to think that you are. Not as holy as you think you are whenever you think about the people who commit the big sins. Well, in our text for this morning, Jesus is going to do something similar He's going to hold our feet to the fire. He's going to hold our feet to the fire with uh, a right interpretation of the law of God, shattering all self-righteousness that we have and leaving our hearts exposed, naked, unprotected by rationalization and our own justifications. That's what Jesus is going to do today. So turn with me in your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. We're carrying on in the Sermon on the Mount. Follow along with me as I read the words of Christ. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not 
hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, last week in verses 17 through 20, Jesus began a pretty lengthy section of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's a a section of the Sermon on on the Mount where Jesus begins to show us what a righteous life looks like. That is, here's what it means to live as loyal subjects of the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. As Jesus says in verse 20, in order to enter that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees. Those religious leaders in the day who kept the law only externally and as a means of earning favor with God. In order for our righteousness to exceed theirs, then, we, we talked about this last week, we must come to God by faith in Jesus Christ so that we will receive his righteousness. Remember, he was perfect for us because we cannot be. We cannot keep the law perfectly, so Jesus had to be. So when we come to God um, through Jesus Christ by faith, we receive his righteousness, which we desperately need. And receiving this righteousness then frees us up to pursue the law of God. Yes, the law of God is still important for us today. Not as a means of earning salvation, but the law of God is important so that we can honor God, express our faith, worship him, serve him with our lives. We do that by obeying the law. And as we then pursue a righteous life to honor Jesus, we do so by obeying the law both inwardly and outwardly. In our text for this morning, Jesus explains that there is more to the law than simply meeting an external requirement. More than just meeting an external requirement. Jesus here demonstrates that the angry are guilty. The angry are guilty. Therefore, anger needs to be addressed with reconciliation and urgency. Okay, those are the points that we're talking about this morning. There's a, there's a big major point, and that is the angry are guilty before God. And then how do we address that problem? Through reconciliation and urgency. So we have one main point that leads to two responses. So let's talk about the main point, first of all. The angry are guilty. In verse 21, Jesus introduces our text by saying this. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. This demonstrates the way in which the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees had distorted the meaning of the law that God intended, okay? Uh, The people Jesus was preaching to had been taught that the law, uh, you shall not commit murder, was limited to the act of taking someone's physical life. That's all that that commandment, you shall not commit murder, that's all that it, it expressed, just taking somebody's physical life. And Jesus now gives them the right interpretation when he says, but I say to you, but I say to you, he's here claiming ultimate authority. Christ is claiming ultimate authority. He's trumping the religious authorities of the day and claiming that he has the correct interpretation of the law. I mean, Jesus is God, isn't he? He's the one who who is responsible for the Mosaic law in the first place. So he's claiming ultimate authority. He's saying, I say this. Here's the correct interpretation of the law. And this kind of, we see that this kind of boldness is um, 
represented in Mark 122, uh, the text says, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He's trumping the religious authority of the day, saying he has the correct interpretation of the law, the one God intended. So Jesus, how are we to understand this commandment then? Jesus, how are we to understand the commandment, you shall not commit murder? Well, you must understand that it speaks to the inner man as well as the outer man, both. It speaks to the inner man as well as the outer man. Everyone then who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, he says. Now, in order for these people to be guilty before the civil court, they would have had to commit murder, Right? Uh, people don't go to court for harboring anger in their hearts against another person. Or else we, I mean, the courts would, you know, you'd have to wait like 50 years before you ever got your sentence, right? Um, so people don't go to court for harboring anger in their hearts, but that's according to man's standard. What Jesus is communicating here is that in the eyes of God, the man who is angry at his brother has the same heart as a murderer and is therefore guilty before him. Murder is the fruit of anger, church, which means that every time that you see a news report where somebody has murdered another person in a, in, in a fit of rage or anger or jealousy, that means that you've got, a lot of com- you've got a lot in common with that person. That means I've got a lot in common with that person. It means I've got the same heart as that person that I, I've just watched that news report about. That means when you, when you think about the uh, guys like the Columbine killers in Colorado, you, you think about them, uh, well, you've got a lot in common with them. I've got a lot, a, lot, a lot in common with those killers because I've got the same heart as they do. Think of terrorists. Think of uh, mass murderers, serial killers. We've got a lot in common with these kinds of people who have, that have actually committed the act of taking someone's physical life because we have the same heart that they do. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's something we've got to remind ourselves of whenever we begin to think that we are um, holier than we really are and we get puffed up and we don't think that we need to do much in order to continue to pursue God, that we're complacent and fine with where we are. Remind yourselves, you have a lot in common with all these people throughout history that we call monsters. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Came from the lips of Christ. Now, certainly the act of taking someone else's life has drastically deeper and widespread consequences for both the victim and those who are close to the victim, okay? But in God's eyes, he looks at the murderer and the person who is angry at his brother and he sees disobedience to this law, disobedience. Now, praise the Lord. As Christians, our guilt has been taken away by Christ so that we are not condemned by God, but we still must strive. Okay, I use that word. I pick that word purposefully. Strive to obey the law of God in order to glorify him and live for him as loyal subjects. Jesus has used 
the correct understanding of the law to lay us bare before God with nothing to hide our guilt behind. We cannot say, at least I'm not a murderer, because we have the same heart as a murderer. Because the, the angry heart of someone who takes someone else's life, well, that angry heart led to that murder. Murder is the fruit of that anger. And they started the same place that we're at whenever we are angry with our brothers or sisters. We're like Adam and Eve. We, we try to hide behind our guilt. And Jesus is laying us bare. Uh, Adam and Eve, what they did whenever they sinned was what? They went and hid, right? They went and hid from God in order to hide their guilt. They, then they uh, sewed fig leaves to cover their nakedness, their guilt, right? And then whenever they were, um, God was confronting them, then they blame shifted, trying to hide their guilt. That's what we do. And spiritually speaking, here's what, here's what I think that we do. Spiritually speaking, we spend too much time inside, walking around inside in our, in our um, comfortable homes, and there's not much light in those homes. It's, it's kind of like whenever, um, you know, I, I look in the mirror before I go to work some, some days, and I look fine in the mirror, but then I get outside, and they're like, man, what? what's that? You know, you kind of look in the mirror, your, your, your rear view mirror, and you start seeing things you didn't see inside because it was dark inside. Well, we walk around uh, in, in our spiritual lives, we spend a lot of time inside. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking us out into the noonday sun, and he's giving us a mirror, and he says, look. All of a sudden, we're, we, uh, wait, I didn't see this before. You know, I, where, where did this come from? See our guilt, our disobedience our dishonoring of God. So Jesus is doing just that. He's taking us out into the noonday sun and giving us a mirror. If we're going to serve Jesus well in response to this, then we need to start obeying the law from the inside out. How do we do that? First, we've got to realize that we're all angry people. We've got to realize that we are all angry people. Every single person in this room, you are an angry person. I am an angry person. No one is exempt from this command. We're all guilty of this. We all want people to do certain things for us. We all want people to be certain things for us. And when they're not, they're not the things we want them to be. They don't do the things we want them to do. Then we erupt in anger. Anger begins to stir in our hearts. Now, listen, I understand that not all anger is evil and therefore a violation of this commandment. Okay, because uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. So there is an anger that we would consider to be a righteous anger. But that anger has, um, is all about God. It's all about, okay, someone's offended God. Someone has sinned against God. Someone has broken God's law. They've defamed God. They've dishonored God. They've offended God with something that they've done, said, you know, uh, some attitude that they've had. And so we get angry because of that, because God has been dishonored. That's a, a righteous, God-centered anger. So I understand that not all anger is a violation of this commandment, but let's be honest with ourselves. The vast majority, vast majority of our anger, it's not righteous. It's not, oh, I'm upset because God has been dishonored. <laughs> we're upset because we've been dishonored. We're, we're upset because uh, we didn't get what we wanted 
Some person didn't do what we wanted them to do. They weren't what we wanted them to be. We should be angry at things because God is dishonored. Yes, pornography, lying, pride, abortion, the worship of celebrities. We should be angry at those kinds of things. But the vast majority of our anger is not that. Even when someone sins, we get angry because we've been inconvenienced in some way, not because God was offended. So when it comes to the vast majority of our anger, what manifestation of anger are you most guilty of? Ask yourself that question now. When it comes to most of your anger, what manifestation of anger are you most guilty of? You know, because we think of an angry person, and here's what we think of when we think of an angry person. We think of those people that we've seen in our lives that just kind of, you know, flip out whenever like a fly lands on their nose or something, or, or somebody in traffic who, uh, you know, is, is just, somebody didn't use a blinker, and so they just kind of go off the handle. That's what we think of when we think of an angry person, and we think that guy's got issues, but we've all got issues with this. So what are you most guilty of? You know, you may... You may be one of those people that is masterful at hiding your anger so that the bitterness that's in your heart and it's festering and it's growing uh, is getting bigger and bigger day by day, but no one else has a clue because you do such a good job of hiding it. Or, or maybe you're the person who masks your anger in holiness by confronting people on their sin. Okay, uh, they, they've sinned in some way and they've sinned maybe against you in some way. And so the holy thing, you remember Pastor Dan just got through talking to us about church discipline. Yes, we need to be exhorting people. We need to be rebuking people and calling people on their sin. We should be a church that does that. But maybe you mask your anger by going to people and pointing out their sins. And it gives you some kind of satisfaction that your anger is being vented in this way. But it's, look, it's looked at as, as very holy. Or maybe you mask your anger in humor, especially sarcasm, right? Uh, it just comes across as being funny or witty, and so we laugh at it, but really the sarcasm was a way to, to uh, vent your anger at somebody. Uh, there, are, there are other people who uh, maybe they've never been in a, so much as a fist fight in their lives, but more anger exists in their heart than the murderer because they've never dealt with the sin. It's gone unchecked. Maybe you're the person who gets angry at others and gets back at them in very subtle ways that don't seem like revenge. Ladies, let me speak to you for just a second. Um, Are you giving prayer requests that are really bits of gossip that paint the person you're angry with in a very negative light? Um, or do you stop inviting certain people to your house for get-togethers or stop calling them or emailing them and so there doesn't seem like revenge, but it's very subtle ways of getting back at somebody? Or do you seek to show yourself holier than that person? You know, you serve more. You have a, a very happy attitude whenever you're around that person. You're, uh, you're making yourself seem like a better Christian because you know it's just going to gnaw at the other person you're angry at. There are those people who may never, ever hurt anybody physically, but they do so with words, okay? Men are often guilty of this. Jesus portrays this uh, in... Um, 
in our text for this morning when he says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty. And whoever says you fools shall be guilty. Do you slander people to their face or do you do it behind their back? Which one? You smear their reputation with cutting words. Men, that, our anger can be very upfront and in your face. Um, you know, we, I think men, especially a lot of the men I know here, hard, hardworking men, you know, we, uh, we, we got our families together. You know, we've, we've, things are pretty controlled in our lives. Well, we encounter people, though, in our lives that are incompetent, we consider to be incompetent or lazy in, in our lives. That's when we fly off the handle. They've dropped the ball in some way. They're, they're incompetent. They're, they haven't followed through with something. And that's when our anger kind of comes to the surface. We're like, what? Come on, do, do your job. Is that us? We're all angry people who frequently break this command. Listen, as Christians, as Christians who have received the righteousness of Christ through faith in his life and death and resurrection, we can and should seek to obey this command by addressing our murderous hearts. We've got to address our murderous hearts. First, you've got to come to terms with the fact that you are an angry person, that you are a person who, uh, yeah, maybe you've never taken someone's physical life, but you have the same heart as a murderer. So we've got to address our hearts. How do we do that? How do we do that? And Jesus tells us. First, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Let me read verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus is saying that if you have offended a brother or sister, that it is so important that you make reconciliation that you should stop whatever act of worship you're in the middle of and go deal with that sin. Go deal with that offense, make reconciliation, then come back and finish worshiping. Why? Why is it so important that we, we stop, you know, for, for, uh, for Israel and for the Old Testament saints, it was, you know, sacrifice, offerings, right? For us, it's coming here on Sunday morning uh, and, and singing and praying and, and listening to the sermon preached. Um, so why is it so important that we stop in the middle of these things and go make you know, things right between our brother that we've offended with our sin. Why? Because our relationships with people affect our relationships, our, our relationship with God. Our relationships with people affect our relationship with God, and that's why it's so important. Now, Peter demonstrates this for us in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Why? Why do that, Peter? Why, why live with our wives in an understanding way? Peter answers the question by saying, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So the way in which a man treats his wife affects the way God hears and answers his prayers. The same can be said of our worship when we have unresolved sin between us and some other brother or sister. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In all actuality, 
The second greatest commandment is part of the greatest commandment because loving our neighbors is one of the ways that we love God. So our relationships with each other affect our relationship with God. That's why it's so important to drop the act of worship, go deal with the sin, ask forgiveness, come back and finish the worship. But you know, even though this is true, we still try to cover up our sin with other people by being faithful in the ceremonial acts of worship, the the Sunday morning acts of worship. We uh, may be proudly resisting the need for us to ask forgiveness of another person, all the while faithfully attending church, serving in ministry, giving our tithes and offerings, and reading our Bible every day. God has a problem with this. God has a problem with this. And and I'll let him tell you, um, turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. Please. 1 Samuel 15. And I'll let God tell you why he has a problem with this hypocritical offering of worship while we've got sinful issues with another brother or sister. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, just certain parts of it, but I'll start start out in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them, but... Everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he has set up a monument monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Verse 18, and the, Lord sent, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, and the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. 
There's another example of this in Amos chapter 5. God is speaking to the people of Israel who are being faithful in their ceremonial Sunday morning types of acts of worship. They're being faithful in that regard. He says to them, I hate your display. He says, I hate your show, you know, your feasts and your festivals and your offerings and your sacrifices. I hate it because uh, they, their hearts had not been in it. They thought they could please the Lord just by, you know, uh, dealing with the external and not the inward, internal. And so he says, I'd rather that mercy and justice flow because they weren't treating one another with those, those things with mercy and justice. He says, I, I wish you would treat, your, treat each other mercifully and just, justfully, right? But they were being faithful in the ceremonial acts of worship. Obedience. God delights in obedience more than sacrifice. And so for us, we, it is extremely important that we make reconciliation because uh, our, our relationship with the person we're going to, right, to make reconciliation with, the person whose forgiveness we're going to ask, well, we're doing that for God. It's not like it's only, uh, it, it's only a relationship that exists between um, a man and a man or a woman and a woman, right? That, that's not what we're talking about. It, 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 is, it is vertical as well as horizontal. So our relationship with that person, us pursuing forgiveness, is an act of worship to God. And so we should deal with that before we go through the ceremonial Sunday morning types of worship. To continue in outward ceremonial aspects of worship without pursuing reconciliation with someone you've offended is like being one of the Pharisees who were just obeying the law outwardly, externally. The very, these were the very people that Jesus was condemning. The very people that Jesus, he, would, he was taking their interpre- interpretation of the law and he was overturning it. He was saying that, that interpretation is wrong. Listen to me. And when we pursue faithful ceremonial worship without reconciliation, then we're being like the Pharisees. Now, just in case you are trying to find a rationalization for this, let me say this. As far as it concerns you, it doesn't matter if the other person who was offended, it doesn't matter if they sinned against you first. It doesn't matter if they sinned against you or, or if they are the ones who started it. It doesn't matter, okay? You are to be most concerned with your relationship with God. So whether you're, you know, don't wait on them to come to you first. Go, deal with it. Deal with it because it matters to God. It is an act of worship to God that you go and make reconciliation. The issue is, first and foremost, between you and God. So go to that person and confess your sin to him or her and do, and do it in, in such a way that you're not making your sin sound better than it is. But let's just, let's just say about our sin what God says about our sin. God hates it. It's evil. Jesus had to die for this sin. Let's not try and, and pull any punches. Let's say about our sin the same thing that God says about our sin. And you know what? When we ask forgiveness, let's do it without saying but. Dan's preached on this before. Don't, don't say, um, yes, uh, will you forgive me? Thank you for forgiving me. But, um, you know, you did this or, you know, I only did it because of what you chose to say to me. No, just deal with your part before God because your relationships with others affect your relationship with God. The second way 
in which Jesus wants us to address our murderous hearts is through urgency. Urgency. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'll read verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Not only are we to pursue reconciliation with those we've offended with our sin, but we're to do it quickly. We're to do it quickly. Because unsettled offenses and quarrels often result in awful circumstances if left unchecked. There is no time like the present to inconvenience yourself in order to reconcile with your brother or sister. There's no time like the present. It doesn't matter how much inconvenience it is to you, do it. And do it quickly. Paul speaks similarly of the same kind of this quickness when he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it now. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Men, let me speak to you just for a second. (coughs) Pardon me. Men, you are the leaders of your home. You should be the quickest to confess your sins, the quickest to ask forgiveness. Are you doing it? What are you waiting on? Have you offended your children? Have you offended your wife? You should be setting an example. Go to them quickly. Man, and I'm still speaking to the men here. I know that we've been taught by example in our lives that to be a man means to hide all vulnerability, to hide all signs of weakness, and that uh, keeps the strong men persona. It's a lie. It's a lie. Look at the, let's look at the, uh, the example of Jesus. Jesus pursued reconciliation, didn't he? But you know what? It wasn't reconciliation that he needed. It was reconciliation that we needed with God, but he pursued it for us. And pursuing this reconciliation, Jesus became weak. First, he became a man, humbly putting on the limitations of a human living in a sinful world. Second, he chose friends, and, uh, and these friends weren't influential in society by anybody's standards. And he associated with what many considered to be the armpit of society, okay? And third, he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, and brutally murdered. All this he did to pursue reconciliation for us. But, you know, it really wasn't weakness, though. It may have looked like weakness on the outside, but it wasn't weakness because he saved us through this weakness. He, and he achieved victory over death and sin and Satan. In a similar fashion, men, it is not weakness for us to confess our sins and humbly seek forgiveness. So go and go quickly. In fact, exhibiting this kind of humility is what Jesus says is true greatness. True greatness. In Mark 10, 43 and 44, Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to become great among you shall be slave of all. In light of this verse, the reality of why we get angry with each other, it really comes out here. Because Jesus is telling us that true greatness is found in being a slave to all, 
which is that true greatness is found in humility, right? If true greatness is found in being a slave of all, true greatness then is um, in being humble. So when, it, when we become sinfully angry with others, we are looking for everyone to be our slaves. The opposite of what Jesus is saying we must do. You want to be truly great, you be humble, and that means you, you are a slave of all. But when we are angry, when we become angry, we are seeking for everyone else to be slave to us. And when they aren't doing what we want them to do and being what we want them to be, we get angry and anger erupts in our hearts. We're seeking to be the king. When we are his loyal subjects, we are Christ's loyal subjects. We should be the ones serving him by being a slave of all. But we're seeking to be the king whenever we get angry with other people because we want them to be our slaves. That's the reality of it. If we think about it and are honest with ourselves, we are loyal subjects to Christ, and Christ says, be slave of all. How often do you get angry at others and expose the fact that you have a murderous heart? If we're honest with ourselves, it's multiple times a day, and that's only if we recognize it, okay? Um, God only knows the true number. So why? Why these, these evil, murderous thoughts and desires? Because we're not just people who sin. We are sinners. We're not just people who do bad things. We are bad. By unpacking this law for us, Jesus is showing us that it is unpo- impossible for us to keep the law. It is impossible for us to keep the law all the time. Yeah, we could go our whole lives without murdering someone, right? I mean, you could do that. You could go your whole life without murdering someone. But can you even go an hour without being angry at someone else? Jesus, is a, he's again exposing our need for his righteousness. We need him to be perfect for us, and he has. And through his death and resurrection, he has given us that righteousness and he achieved it by being perfect for us in those 33 years he lived for all those who come to him by faith. At the same time, however, he is showing us how to live as his loyal subjects through obeying the law, not in order to earn salvation, but in order to serve him faithfully. In terms of anger, we need to realize we are all angry people. Okay, don't even think about anybody else but yourself right now. Just don't think about anybody else right now but yourself. You are an angry person. You have the heart of a murderer. I have the heart of a murderer. But Jesus says there's a way to address that. First of all, we need Jesus. If you you haven't come to Jesus Christ for salvation, you need his righteousness. You can't obey this. So you need to come crawl to him and cry out for his mercy because you need him to be perfect for you. And he transfers that righteousness to you through, uh, through his cross, through his death and resurrection. But for us to have that righteousness, he's given us a way to address our murderous heart. Let's make reconciliation. Let's be people that are quick to do it too. Let's be quick to go and make reconciliation. And in fact, I'm going to challenge everybody here. If there's somebody in this body, or maybe not even somebody in this body, but somebody you can contact by phone after you get done here in this service, do it. 
I'm about to finish up here. We're about to sing a song. You know what? I I challenge you, even if you've got somebody you need to make reconciliation with, before we sing this song, as I'm praying, get up and go. And go call. Or go talk to somebody you need to talk to. You know, interrupt the worship. And go do it. Because God... His, our relationship with God is affected by our relationship with, with others. And he's given us a way to address our murderous hearts. We must seek reconciliation and we must do it quickly. Let me pray. God, how desperately we need you. How desperately we need the righteousness of Christ. Father, thank you that he has imputed that righteousness to us through the blood of his cross. Thank you, God, that you have given us instruction on how to address our murderous hearts as Christians. Help us to be quick to ask forgiveness and quick to confess our sins, Father. May we not wait for the other person because our relationship with you is affected by it. And we want to be close. We want to experience intimate fellowship with you, God. Please help us to do this because you're worthy of us to change. pray in Jesus' name, amen.